Welcome to The Workplace, where we're hot on the trail of what makes great workplace cultures tick and what we can all do to make the ones we work in better. I'm Andrew Scarcella. This episode, we're talking with Tim Coupler about how workplace culture evolves and what we can do to guide it in the right direction, like the tiny cultural tugboats we are. Join us after the interview for tangible takeaways, where we'll talk about the ideas and actions we can take with us and implement in our own workplace cultures. Tim Coupler is the Director of Culture and Organization Development with Human Synergistics, a pioneer in the field of workplace culture and leadership assessment and development. He's also the co-founder of CultureUniversity.com and author of Build the Culture Advantage. Tim was interviewed by David Sturt, an executive vice president at O.C. Tanner, New York Times bestselling author, and my benevolent boss. Hi, David. Welcome back to The Workplace. Thanks. Great to be with you, Andrew. So, Tim Coupler, he's a workplace culture expert, much like yourself. What was it like going toe-to-toe with someone who's uh, you know, just as steeped in the world of workplace culture? You know, it was great. Uh, Tim's a a phenomenal mind. He's a great thinker. He's been around culture for a long time. Part of the interesting thing of him was uh, being a practitioner. uh, He was a business leader first. And during being a business leader is when he figured out how much culture meant to the overall success of the organization. And that's what led him over time into more of of a culture expert. And so it was delightful chatting with him and interacting with him and kind of getting his perspectives also from a from a, a measurement standpoint he's spent quite a bit of time uh, with uh, with the organization he's part of around measurement specifically yeah he kind of uh, backed into workplace culture didn't he it wasn't his first love no he was a business leader and uh, as he as he went down the road and led some pretty good sized companies uh, he discovered how much that impacted everything and ultimately results. And he had some turnarounds, he had some things, and he just thought, man, I, I got to help other companies figure this out too. He's pretty connected to all of the major uh, threads of thought going through culture. And I think that's what made the interview fun is uh, just from his perspective. Well, uh, I'm really excited to hear what you guys talked about. So uh, let's not delay, let's get to it. Well, Tim, it's great to have you here. Tell me, just as as we've had chances to chat and talk a little bit about culture and what you're seeing, let's just start with what is culture and uh, how do you define it and uh, how does that uh, impact how we see the world? So we look at culture and kind of our working definition is that it's all about these shared values and beliefs that can lead to behavioral norms or these unwritten rules that drive us in organizations to fit in, solve problems, and meet expectations. So it's much more about what's expected around here, which forces us to get below the surface of just kind of how things work around here on the surface. We don't really get to the level of culture with that. We want to look at kind of values, norms, beliefs, and assumptions are are really the realm of culture. You know, so often culture gets labeled as a soft thing and as something that's squishy or something that 
you know, maybe people value, but how does it relate to driving the business? And I, I think that orientation in that context is so clear. It's uniting around actually delivering and accomplishing the goals of the organization. Otherwise, it's easy to go off the path and spend a whole lot of time just talking about how to make a culture better, but without the context of impacting results and outcomes. Well, and the flip side is, you know, if we're not achieving those results or we're doing it in a way that's not working for team members and we're stressing people out, the collateral damage we talk about can be just incredible. So we want to unite people behind the purpose and performance, but in a constructive way. Exactly. And you've, you come from an interesting background, having been an operating leader, been responsible for turning things around. You've had a few experiences like that. Tell me just uh, one of them where uh, what you sort of found going in and how you brought about that change. Because I think that changed the whole, your whole career path as you began to understand the dynamics of what was going on. Absolutely. So I was at one organization for 17 years and I moved through, kept getting promoted and having to bring a new team together. So kept refining kind of how to put an operating model in place and engage people around it. But then I went to a new organization. And what I learned through that is what we think we know is often the biggest barrier. So at a new organization, it was like a clean sheet and they had been declining in revenue for over five years. It was a culture of fear, just horrendous. 60 million in revenue, losing 15 million. That's kind of hard to do. So, <laughs> Ouch. so I found that just engaging and starting with a clean sheet and, and building things up together, understanding history and what got us here, but then the design going forward, being more collaborative and me not guiding everything too much, but just helping to be a facilitator was really powerful. And that takes a, a shift in what you view your role as yeah. a leader to be. And, uh, you know, as we shared some insights earlier today around what's happening with leadership and this sort of sea change of expectation, you were ahead of that curve. You know, I think we've seen a few leaders sort of break out of the uh, their existing uh, tradition of leadership that is often inherited from previous leaders who you've had, yeah. How, what caused you to shift that and, and, and actually share more of that leadership responsibility, clearly going into a role that required a turnaround? What, what caused you to think differently about culture rather than sort of dragging people to success? So I talked about when I was promoted, you know, multiple times at that one organization. So I was promoted to a VP level at, you know, 29 years old. So, and director of quality in like a fuel systems business, you know, and being head of quality, a lot of responsibility. So I didn't know as much as quite honestly, a lot of members of the team that I was responsible for leading. So real quick, I found that my only avenue to success was doing this as a team because I just didn't have enough life experience. So I was lucky that way and learned early. So you you just you just because of what you didn't know, you needed to rally the troops rather than in a model that often leaders find themselves in, they feel like they've they've become expert at that particular function. Exactly. And then they think it's part of the responsibility to sort of replicate that expertise into each person and and sort of direct them through it all. But interesting how you came upon that and then you discover 
how much more engaged people are when they feel like they have a stake in the leadership. Well, and I think the barrier is often fear that, you know, what got us here won't get us there. The whole, I think that's Marshall Goldsmith, but uh, what we only have confidence in is kind of the how-to side of what we've done before. So it's kind of risky and there's these beliefs we have that involving people takes longer or it's my, my, my job as a leader to make the call. That's why I'm here. And well, those, I mean, those are flawed in many ways when it comes to really uniting a team and bringing everyone's capabilities together to really supercharge results. So it, that's why we talk about when it comes to focusing on performance, let's pick an area. Let's pick an area of customer experience and let's figure out a more inclusive approach. We're already going to work on that anyway because it's one of our top priorities. So why not get a team helping us on how we engage the organization around it and let's do it in inclusive ways. And yeah, we might have to drive some things home quickly, but that doesn't need, need to be everything. Mm -hmm. And that brings us, I think, to the next topic of how do you change culture? So wherever you are in the organization, whether you're part of a culture change initiative, whether you're a leader, whether you're an employee that's on a team that's trying to impact culture in a positive way, how do you go about that process? Is it, is it, uh, is it movable? And, and how do you bring that about? So it's absolutely, absolutely movable. And I think we each have talked about kind of different four phase approaches that we typically use just to get a, a common understanding. So it's based on this fundamental from Edgar Schein that, that, uh, culture builds and evolves through shared learning and mutual experience. So we want to start with the why the problem statement, the result or outcome we want to improve. Then we've got to build a baseline. We've got to understand the current state and how our culture is helping us deliver outcomes in that area where it's holding us back. And then that provides a little bit of a lens when it comes to creating change. So if it was an important area of customer experience, we should already have plans and strategies. So it's not about creating a culture plan. It's about bringing clarity to our current plans and approaches. It's about getting feedback and prioritizing some adjustments as a group so people feel they are influencing the direction. And then we're designing the change with learning. So there's checkpoints. So I would hold involvement meetings every six months for 10 years where we'd give the state of the business, we do feedback and prioritization on these critical performance priorities, but we then at the next meeting talk about what we decided at the last meeting. and what progress we were making. And we'd get feedback from them on what's really working, what didn't live up to expectations. So this design of iterative learning with groups, very few organizations like have an operating model that drives that, even though they might have all staffs and company meetings and other things, we're not like building it into our operating model and driving learning in groups at the heart of it. What do you do when you have a leader who's a real blocker? Maybe they've grown up uh, with, with leadership practices that they've observed and sort of absorbed, and you're trying to bring about a culture change, and at, whether it's at the CEO level or as a divisional head who's just not into this, and you're feeling and seeing the need for some culture change, how do you tackle that with that leader? So we have a partner in Australia, and, and he talks about uh, don't sell, create the gap. So we want to make the gap visible. 
and we want to engage them in that process to say, yeah, there is a gap that's important. But we don't have to engage them fully in the change unless they are a total blocker, right? Unless they will not let the first step forward. But usually if we can get them to see the gap and, hey, let's fix that from a business perspective, let's get a team behind it, then we want to use the culture fundamental that results are required for any new cultural attribute to form. So if we get a team and we make some initial progress and we go back to that leader and they see, oh, yeah, I kind of like, you know, this is performance oriented. This is on a better path. Then we can maybe get their involvement a little more. So I don't like it when it's like people view the leader not getting involved as kind of a no-go. Well, they don't need to be totally involved. They just can't be a complete blocker of any work going forward. If we can get a team behind something, then it's back on us. Let's show that approach is better than what we were doing before. Now, uh, Tim, in as much as you, uh, you work at Human Synergistics that has a, a real history and legacy of measuring what's happening at the cultural level, tell us a little bit about some of the learnings you've gained uh, by being part of that. What are some of the insights? What are some of the observations for somebody who's beginning a culture journey how that, how that might help them. So, you know, I was dealing with this topic of culture um, for 15 years before I came to Human Synergistics about five years ago. And I was like, I've been duped, right? <laughs> that most of what I was thinking was culture is actually climate, right? Really not about what these norms are, what these shared values are and the beliefs people hold. So I came to Human Synergistics and I was like, wow, you know, how didn't I come across this before? So we've been around for over 40 years, but we kind of pioneered culture measurement on a global scale, but more the real culture as far as these, what do people value? What do people believe leads to effectiveness? But then how's that compared to these unwritten rules and these norms? Like are the norms that I should plan ahead, share my ideas proactively, or are the norms, oh, get approvals, lay low when things are tough, avoid conflict, whatever it might be. So HS is like a leader in getting a language and measurement around that. And then because we use more of a collaborative model, we're about kind of bringing insights together on change where once we've got the language and measurement and really understand what culture is, how it evolves, then let's bring it together what the experts say about facilitating that evolution. And then let's bring tools like OC Tanner into the mix on how do you scale these experiences and approaches across bigger organizations. But that core's gotta be there and we've gotta understand the definitions, the measurements, things like that. If we wanna take the most direct path to culture-related change. So once you've got your, uh, your measurement and you see some particular gaps that you wanna go after, what do, you, what do you do next? Well, we're focusing on the business priority, the why, and then we're zeroing in on a from to shift Right? So we got to go from leaders maybe not listening, not encouraging, people laying low to a very uh, approach where we involve people in decisions that impact them. We plan ahead. And then we say, well, let's do that on one priority, bring that together and do it with a team. So this language and measurement becomes a lens on a priority to engage people differently and, and urgently, usually in about a six to nine month period, getting meaningful business measures moving. And then we'll use the culture and climate analytics, you know, every year to two years to just understand what's really getting in, in the culture. 
because another shine point is that the results precede the culture change, right? So that's the reinforcement loop. Why is it ever going to spread if people don't think it works for us? I think that's an outstanding principle that as uh, anybody's taking on a culture change, start small, start with a team, focus on results, focus on how to get those and embed the very practices that you're trying to become have become the norms for that team. How do you scale those learnings out beyond that team? Sure. So, well, it becomes a team, a team structure. So pretty much in every organization I've been with, there's been like a functional structure, a division structure, and we're trying to cut across that with different teams that are focused more on outcomes, customer experience, quality, whatever it might be. So at those organizations I led, I had 30 global teams that in a sense almost like directly reported to me because it wasn't our functional heads that were the leaders of those and really guiding them. It was cross-functional teams below our senior management level. So when we can make it work on an individual team on a priority, then we can start to talk about our broader strategy and where else do we need teams to work and leaders then to hopefully move to be more in co- more of a coach and uh, builder in the organization, orchestrator than a command and control driver. On another note, tell us a little bit about your favorite book around culture or favorite uh, article you've read recently or something that you found insightful. So, you know, I'm, I'm a big shine person, you know, for those of you on this podcast, Edgar Shine's arguably the, the top thought leader in the history of culture. He's 91 years old, and he recently uh, wrote Organizational Culture and Leadership, the fifth edition, as well as the Corporate Culture Survival Guide. So I strongly suggest anyone just get those two books, understand what this topic's just really all about. You know, he, he gives pieces of change and all of that, but understanding the fundamentals, I think, is is the key, and I go back to it over and over again. Tell us just a little bit more about the experience that uh, that you just took a whole bunch of people through. Well, as you know, it's been a one-year journey collaborating with you and, and culminating at this conference with sharing this culture journey learning experience, a real engaging approach to educate about uh, educate people about culture, uh, facilitated in tables of six to ten using the root learning map methodology. So it seemed to go over really well, lots of fun. Uh, but as you know, um, working with you guys, there's a supplement to your global culture report that's getting into some of these unwritten rules and how they play out globally. So we're super excited that that's being released today along with your global culture report overall. So it's a big day for us, and, and we really uh, appreciate the collaboration. Any other things you see coming from a future standpoint when you think about the future of culture? You know, I think we learned about culture from like the school of hard knocks and 20, 30 years of trial and error, and it doesn't need to be that way, right? The pioneers are out there, you know, Edgar Schein, Rob Cook, Larry Sun, other people that we can learn from to accelerate our culture learning curve. So that's why I started cultureuniversity.com. And, you know, let's make these insights visible. Let's even share them because most don't realize what they are, what these facts and fundamentals about culture are. But when I look to the future, what I know will exist is, so if culture builds through shared learning and mutual experience in an organization, 
what we will see in the future is kind of multi-organizational change, right? So, so think about foundations, thinks about, think about private equity or, or people trying to make major change, deliver huge service uh, in society that then we'll get multiple organizations on a common learning journey. So it's not just within your own organizational culture where you're trying to make things happen, but hey, we've got a common purpose here and we want this common outcome. So how do we learn together, learn across organizations? I mean, that's where we're going, but you know, it's maybe 5% of the organizations today that are just doing it real methodically on their own culture. So I'm excited about that. I'm excited about data, apps, other things that are going to help us scale change efforts, education, experiences, and all the stuff OC Tanner does. Um, so that's where it's going. Big data, all that stuff. Most of that big data is about climate. So uh, it will eventually be about culture and norms and beliefs and values and all that. But that's quite a ways out the way things are going. <laughs> <laughs> it takes some time, doesn't it? Yes. But I love the energy and I really salute you for all of the work you've done <clears throat> that has impacted a lot of people to help them better understand culture and better understand their role in actually making progress and getting it closer to the target culture they aspire to. And I think, uh, again, kudos to you for all the work you're doing. We're grateful to have you here and uh, look forward to many more conversations about how, how to help others better understand and move their culture to make thriving workplace cultures. Thanks again for being with us today. Absolutely. So happy to be here and looking forward to the future. Now it's time for Tangible Takeaways, where we take big ideas for a shopping spree on Chicago's Magnificent Mile and spoil them with outfits from all the hottest designers. Burberry, Prada, Kenzie, and Svalbard, a brand so high-end, it only has one store, and you're not allowed in. The first is that workplace cultures evolve on their own. As much as we may want to control them, we can't, really. The best we can do is guide and shape them. But that doesn't mean we're powerless. Far from it. It all starts with a clear understanding of why. Why are we trying to change our cultures? What outcomes do we want to achieve by doing so? This is the crux of intentional cultures. As clear as our vision is for change, we'll always have to have checkpoints along the way so you can adjust and refine to account for cultural drift. Tim suggests holding involvement meetings with key stakeholders every six months for as much as 10 years to gather feedback and adjust priorities, which sounds daunting. But that's exactly the kind of long-term thinking that leads to the very best cultures. The second is that while we want our cultures to be built on a foundation of shared values and common purpose, the real drivers of culture are often unwritten, unspoken rules and norms. This is why workplace culture is such a tricky thing to try and shape. Because most times, it shapes itself. No one wants unconscious bias, 
presumed communication styles, or a tendency to default to traditional leadership as part of their workplace culture. But they're there, lurking in the shadows, digging their roots into your people and preventing real change from happening. So as much as you may need to preach the gospel of what your ideal culture should be, and you do, it's at least as important to articulate what it shouldn't be. The third is that the future of workplace culture has never been more unknown. Right now, we're in a moment of upheaval and unpredictability, out of which could come any number of new paradigms, good or bad, but hopefully good. It's springtime on the farm, and the earth is ready to be tilled. So start up your tractor, grab a seed bag, and don't forget to feed the chickens. They get cranky when they're hungry. Okay, okay. Sheesh, what was I thinking starting this farm metaphor? I'm a city mouse. As always, this episode was written and produced by yours truly, with original music and sound design by Daniel Foster Smith. If you liked this episode, or even if you didn't, Please rate, review, and of course, subscribe to The Workplace on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have a burning question about workplace culture or a story about why your workplace culture is the best or worst, send it to theworkplace at octanner.com and maybe we'll talk about it on an upcoming episode. The Workplace is sponsored by O.C. Tanner, the global leader in engaging workplace cultures. O.C. Tanner's Culture Cloud provides a single, modular suite of apps for influencing and improving employee experiences through recognition, career anniversaries, well-being, leadership, and more. People can't wait to come to work in the morning. Go to octanner.com.